My dad's back. We talk about all sorts of family stuff. Cars, motorcycles that have come and gone from his life. Some of the cars are still in his life. Uh, Relatives who fought in wars we got into. Some recipes. And um, some unique stories and unique things about Heisingas. We get into all that and more on this episode, Out of the Hat. My dad is back. Hello, Dad. How are you? Hey, doing good. <laughs> now, you just got off uh, the computer doing some French, right? Yep. Cool. So we're trying Zoom this week, which is, uh, I know, a little bit of a different uh, different thing for you. I'm pretty impressed. You figured out how to do Zoom all on your own. I didn't have to call you up and walk you through any of it. You've, you've figured it out like a pro. Yeah. Well, to be honest with you, I, I downloaded the app back in August, I think it was, in preparation for the French classes. And we've been using Zoom every week. So, yeah, but still, you figured out what the heck you're doing. And I didn't have to call you up in a panic with you screaming and yelling that this doesn't make any sense. And why can't it just be, you know, the 1960s when it was a simpler time or any of that? Well, you got it. No. I never scream and yell. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, well, I, uh, I prefer a simpler time. I know. I know. And that's OK. And uh, <laughs> I would say you don't usually scream and yell at me. Usually you just get frustrated. Yeah, I, I, it would have been nice when I was a kid if uh, my father could have had a cell phone if because of his health reasons. That would have been a a real relief for him, but wasn't wasn't meant to be. Yeah. So I thought of one or two things that I want to bring up before I dive into the book a little bit for this week. You and I have have talked privately a lot about the car that I have out here that we're uh, getting ready to sell. And and yep. that, that got me thinking a lot about cars that have meant something to you that you've had in your possession throughout your life, which I'm guessing if I just stop talking now, you could probably talk for at least the next three or four hours about that. But uh, l- let's try to do a few minutes here and, and talk to me about some of the cars that have uh, been important to you that you've had the, the last 50 plus years. Well, uh, let's start with my first first car that I owned. Let's do it. And uh, that was a 1958 MGA, which had just a little under uh, 80 horsepower. It was a four-cylinder, little two-seat sports car. And as a matter of fact, when your mom and I went for a ride today in the Corvette, we went south on Wagner Road, and somebody right before Dexter Road has an MGA, that looks very, very similar to mine. It has uh, the uh, fiberglass hard top and it had the uh, wire wheels with the knockoff uh, hubs. 
And boy, oh boy, was that ever a nostalgic trip as we drove by it. So that car was uh, an absolute blast to drive. How did Your you son. how did you come to pick out the MGA? How did that become your first car? Well, when I was uh, 10 and in fourth grade, my teacher, uh, she and her husband bought a, I don't remember exactly what year that was. I want to say a 1959 uh, Triumph TR3, which is a similar car small British uh, convertible two-seat. And uh, hers was black with a black top and a black interior. And I was walking home with one of my friends from school and she was going our way. And so she pulled over and tooted the horn and said, hop in, I'll give you a ride. And so uh, it was basically just down the street, but it was the thrill of my life to be in this British sports car. And uh, that was a, a year or two old, I guess. And uh, anyway, that kind of started the bug. And so when I got older, I was on the hunt for a TR3 and found four of them up near Whitmore Lake. And when I got there to look at them, they were all in pieces and parts and sitting on a trailer. And the guy wanted me to buy the trailer load of broken down old cars and parts for 400 bucks. And I said, you know, I said, I don't have a garage and I don't think that's going to work for me. So I started looking through the paper and I found this one, this little MGA that I got in Pittsfield Village, which is a little apartment complex on the east side of Ann Arbor. And the guy wanted uh, 300 bucks. I think I offered him like 275. He said, how's 290? And I said, done. And so I bought it. And uh, about six months later, it, it wasn't the fastest car on the planet. And I wanted something that was a little, back then muscle cars were real popular. So I wanted something that was a little faster. Uh, so I sold it to a kid. I, I worked with his sister and anyway, he liked the car and wanted to buy it. So I sold it to him for three fifty. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> so I basically bought and drove that car for nothing for six months. But anyway, that's another, another story. So after I sold that, uh, I wanted to get something that was nice. My mother had had a very early Mustang. She had a little red coupe. Uh, she was supposed to get it for her birthday in 1964 on April 26th, but the dealership didn't get the car in until about the first week in May. But it was a little Ford dealership in Dexter, Michigan, and it was the first one they'd gotten in. 
And it, it was a little Rangoon red with a Rangoon red interior. And uh, I think my dad paid like $1,835 for the thing, $1,836, something like that. And that baby was brand new. A little automatic and a six cylinder and it was a nice car. And by the way, that was the first car when I was 13 that I ever drove. Your aunt pulled over on the dirt road on the way down to our cottage and said, you wanna drive? She had just gotten her license. And so I said, heck yeah. So I got to drive down to the cottage. <laughs> anyway, uh, so I knew I, I liked that car. A little underpowered with a six cylinder, but I found one with an eight cylinder automatic. And it was yellow with kind of a tan interior. Nice car. The back seat would fold down, so it was sort of like a station wagon. It was a it was a fastback design, and uh, paid uh, about a thousand bucks for the car. And uh, gosh, I think I kept that car for about a year, year and a half and then sold it to buy uh, a 1968 Charger in the fall of 1970. And uh, the Charger was uh, blue with a black vinyl top. It was the RT model with a 440 Magnum, about 375 horsepower, four speed and a 355 uh, or 354. Dana rear end, which was a Chrysler truck um, differential in the back to, to hold up to all that horsepower. And uh, I had that car uh, up until right before your mom and I were married. And then I sold it to a, uh, an Asian man who was soaking wet about 100 pounds. And about two weeks later, I saw it downtown all smashed in in the back. About two weeks later, I saw it downtown all smashed up in the front. And about two weeks later, I saw it all smashed up on the driver's side. And then I never saw it again. <laughs> Jeez, so three accidents in that car for that guy? Yeah, huge accidents, too. They were, uh, I mean, that, whole, that car was bent up like a banana. And uh, it was really, uh, it was tragic because while I didn't, I only got uh, about 300 bucks for the car when I sold it, but it was still in pretty decent shape. It might've been a little tired, but it would have been a great candidate for restoration today, but he pretty much ruined it. So that, that one was gone. And uh well, that's about it as far as the real old cars, Joe. Uh, your Aunt Susie had a brand new 1968 GTO, and that was a, not only a beautiful car, but fast as lightning. And uh, she kept that for two or three years. And then my, my father, your grandpa, bought it from her. And when he realized he was only getting eight miles to a gallon, <laughs> he decided he was gonna sell it. 
and tried to sell it to me, but buddy, I was a starving student. This is probably about fall of 73. I would love to have had the car because it was pretty low mileage. It only had about 30,000 miles on it, maybe 35. And, uh, but he wanted $800 for the car. And, and although that was really reasonable back then, it was a lot of money back in those days. So I said, dad, I can't afford it. And he says, well, I'll tell you what, he said, take the car and you can pay me next summer. Cause he knew I, worked in the factories in the summertime, made a lot of money. But uh, fortunately or unfortunately, I declined and he sold it to some guy in Willis, Michigan, who was planning on turning it into a drag race car to use down at Milan, uh, Milan Michigan, where the, where the drag race uh, track was at. And after that, I never, I never heard anything about the car, so I don't know what happened to it. So the, the, the first two cars that I remember oh, when I was in Mom and Yours Life was the red van. Was that a Plymouth Voyager? Is that the name of that thing? Yeah, that was uh, a 1984 model. And then Mom had the Dodge uh I'm blanking on the name of that. Was that a Dodge Aries? Yes, that was a little... Uh, which one do you remember, the blue one or the gray one? I remember the gray one. Okay, she had two, and the uh, the gray one was the second one that she owned. And I think she used to call that car the oven, or you called it the oven? Yeah, we both called it the oven because it would overheat toward the ends of its life. Well, that, and it was shaped like an oven. It was uh, boxy and small. Oh, I always called it the oven just because it would overheat once in a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what about the more recent cars that you've owned, if you had to highlight a couple? I know you love your Mustang. Yeah. Well, I uh, in about '04 um, in the fall fall of actually 03 they came out with a uh, i've been saving my money and uh i i sort of had it as uh sort of tucked away quietly in the uh credit union and uh it was sort of jim's car fund and anyway i had about 25 grand in there and your last semester or last year of school you and mom found out about it and by the time that was all done uh, I think I had like eleven dollars left in that account mm. <laughs> so I started saving up again and your mom and I went down to I don't know get an oil change do something at Naylor Motors on Stadium Boulevard and they had this little Chrysler Crossfire in the showroom. And this was late in 03. And your mom just fell in love with that car. So I said, well, you know, gee, this is funny. The car guy has to get in line behind your mom to get a, get a cool car. But I said, okay. But I said, you know, remember, I said, this is similar to the Mercedes SLK. 
and they're probably going to come out with a convertible and a supercharged model. Why don't you wait? No, 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 I don't want any of that. I'll, I'll take this one. Okay, so we bought it. And then about a year later, uh, we were down there again buying the convertible with the supercharger on it. So she ended up with two of them. So shortly after that, uh, I needed a new vehicle. So we went, we went to this Ford dealer in Chelsea and I found a beautiful truck that I liked, a red truck and it had this uh, gold painted trim down on the bottom and it, it was nice. And I wanted that real bad, but your mother with her dad working for Chrysler wanted, uh, wanted to stay loyal to the brand. So we went down to uh, La Fontaine and Celine and I started talking to the guys about getting a truck. So he said, well, we've got a nice one, a red one. We'll pull it up in a couple minutes, uh, you know, give the guys a minute and look around in the showroom. So they had a 2008 snakeskin green with silver stripes Dodge Viper. And I said, uh, and they had these showroom lights on it and it looked like a million dollars. And uh, so I said to mom, I said, wow, I just love that car. And she says, you'll never fit in that car. <laughs> so I looked at the sales guy and he says, go ahead. So I opened the door, stuck a leg in, pulled the other one in, kind of scrunched around, closed the, sucked it in, closed the door, and lo and behold, I fit. So uh, about two months later, it's like the day after Christmas and it's a Sunday and I'm looking at a full page ad that the dealership had on the, on the back of the paper. And it said, uh, Dodge Viper two left. They had that green one and they had an orange convertible and it said uh, $20,000 discount manufacturer and $10,000 employee discount. So that was $30,000 off a $93,000 car. And I said to your mom, what do you think? And she said, you worked hard all your life. If you want it, go get it. So I called them up, gave them 500 bucks on the credit card and went down a couple days later to sign all the paperwork. And lo and behold, it was, it's in December, but it was pouring down rain. And all that rain washed all the salt off the roads. And the next day I went down and picked it up. What a great car. And in the meantime, I was talking to him about getting a SRT8 Challenger, which had the, uh, the Hemi in it and was uh, about 430, 435 horsepower. And uh, so he said, well, you know, he said, there's some issues. This was 2009. He said, well, there's some issues with bankruptcy and blah, 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 blah. And so while we were waiting to figure out what was going to happen to that car, I saw the bullet 2008 bullet Mustang sitting in the uh, uh, parking lot at the Ford dealership down here. And uh, 
tried to get your mom enthused in that car. And she really didn't care for it because it, I showed it to her in an overcast day. And it has that uh, high, dark highland green with the gold fleck in it. And uh, it didn't show well on a cloudy overcast day. So she said, isn't there any other color? And I said, well, I got a few in black. And I said, I found one up near grandma's uh, north of um, Utica. So she said, well, let's go look at that. So we drove up there and they had the black one and a green one sitting out in front of the building. And it was a beautiful sunny day. And I'm over there negotiating a deal on the black one. And your mom says, oh, come look at this. She said, this green is so beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> and I could have strangled her. So she says, oh, I want you to get the green one. Well, they had a nice green one back in Ann Arbor. So I told the guy, thanks. Called the dealer in Ann Arbor, put a deposit over the phone, and we went in and bought it. In the meantime, uh, John Nabosny, whom you know from dealing with the Chrysler, called me and said, I'm sorry to say, but the 2009 SRT8 Challenger order that you have in has been canceled. He said they're going through the bankruptcy and they've ceased production and they're not going to make it. So I said, okay, too bad. So I was sitting around the house about a week, 10 days later. He calls me up and he says, you still want your car? And I said, yeah. And he says, I got a dealer in Traverse City that had the exact car I wanted. They brought it in for a guy and he changed his mind and didn't want it. And the dealer in Traverse City said, I can't give this car away. And they traded my dealer traded for that car I wanted with some Chrysler 300. And so a week later, they brought it down and, uh, and I bought the Challenger. <laughs> so uh, that's the story of those. Good deal. And then uh, a few years later, we bought, we bought the Dodge Hell, Hellcat. And we got that in uh, uh, Sublime, which is that uh, real bright green. Came with a, a kind of a cognac colored or, or dark tan colored interior. It doesn't sound really good, but in the 70s, that combination was real popular. And that car was designed to be kind of a retro looking car. And that car was a beast. It was unbelievably fast. But um, your your mom was uh, had been ill off and on for a few years, and uh, it got to the point where I was having a hard time driving all the cars. And so it was getting to the point where I was just barely getting the cars out, driving the gas out, changing the oil, and putting them all away. And it just got to be too much. And so uh, so I sold the uh, Hellcat mm -hmm. about a year, year and a half ago. And then the guy absolutely wouldn't leave me alone about the Viper. He just loved the Viper. 
And Joe, I'd had that for about 10 years and the Hellcat had 700 miles on it and the Viper had just turned 3000. And so I thought, you know, I'm not getting enough use out of these cars. Your mother wasn't driving anymore. And so I thought, you know, maybe it's time to let a couple of them go. So I still have the blue Challenger and the green Mustang. You have the first Crossfire. She still has the convertible. Mm-hmm. And somewhere along the line in there, she fell, uh, fell in love with this red automatic transmission 2012 Corvette that we bought. And I still have that just today turned over 8,900 miles. Hmm. So anyway, that's kind of the, the ups and downs of the, uh, of the cars. Talk to me a little bit about motorcycles. I know you had a Honda and, and I, And I know that when I was, gosh, probably just becoming a teenager, there was the frame of a Hodaka and there were some boxes of a Hodaka, I believe. Mm -hmm. Uh, How did you come to, you know, have a thing for motorcycles? Well... Uh, when I was a teenager, around 16, my my best friend, Tom Weber, uh, had an interest in motorcycles. And, and I did, too, but to a lesser extent. But he went out and bought a Honda 160. And that was driving me crazy because here he's off flitting around on this motorcycle and I'm sitting at home. So my brother had a very good friend named Terry Finch. And he now lives out near Coldwater, Michigan, on a little little inland lake. And Terry had this 1967 Honda 305 Scrambler. And so just on a lark, I asked Richard, uh, you know, if he would give Terry a call and see if Terry wanted to sell it. This was 1968, right at the end of the year. So he said, well, let me think about it, and I'll call you back after Christmas. So he called me the first week in January and said, yep, I'll sell it. Uh, He said, I paid about $654. I'd like to to get about $425 for it. So I said, said, if you can deliver it to me, done. And I said, if you have to ride it, I'll give you a ride home. He said, no, I'm not riding it in January. So he brought it to me in a pickup truck and I paid him and everybody was there to help unload it. My dad, Tom, me, and uh, oh my gosh, I just absolutely had a ball on that thing. Uh, but they're, they're dangerous, you know, let's, let's be honest. So I kept that and that summer I was trying to buy at the time, my motorcycle of the of my dreams, a 1969 Triumph Bonneville. And when I, when I had the cash to do it, uh, they said, sorry, we've already sold all of the bikes we're going to get. And so back in those days, you just kind of bought from your local dealer. And I guess if I had it to do over again, I could have gone to another city and 
see what, you know, if somebody around here would have had one, but I didn't. And he said, we may have some in the fall, which they didn't. And so I kind of lost my, uh, my zeal to get one after that. And so I went through the winter, uh, had sold my bike to a good friend of mine and Richard's, Lenny Beach. And Lenny was uh, one of the ushers at mom's uh, and my wedding. And so um, a couple of years later, I was working with a guy and he said his dad had this trail bike and it had broke down and they'd sent the motor in and had it all rebuilt. And uh, he said, we're thinking about selling it. And I said, well, you know, my son's getting about that age, a friend of his rides in the backyard. And I said, you know, that might be a nice project for he and I. It was a 125cc and it was called a combat wombat. <laughs> and so uh, I bought it and it was basically together. I just needed to install the motor and tranny and hook up the cables and off we could have gone. Well, you were much more interested in sports and had very little, if any, interest in that motorcycle. Correct. <laughs> and so it sat in the garage for, I don't know, three, four years. And finally, uh, your mom called me up and said, I'm having a garage sale. There's a guy here that wants to buy it. And so I let it go. Yep. And then there was another, I had a 750 Honda. Uh, and that you were you were pretty young. Uh, I'm trying to think. That was a 1982 model, but I think I bought that in about 1990, and it only had about 1,200 miles on it. And I bought that as a prelude to getting a Harley. And my thinking at the time was. I'm going to ride the hell out of this motorcycle and prove to your mom that I'll use it and she'll let me buy a Harley. So I bought it. And I think the first year I put about 50 miles on it. The second year I started it, took it down Huron River Drive from Dexter back to home, which is about 10 miles. The third year, I started it and let it warm up in the driveway, change the oil. Hmm. I'm and noticing a pattern the, here. And the fourth, fifth, and sixth years, it sat in the garage, uh, you know, just sitting there. Uh -huh. And so uh, I thought, well, boy, I can't, I can't justify a $25,000 Harley Davidson to ride you know, 65 miles in five years. <laughs> so I kind of gave up on that idea. And then uh, I dragged it out. And your grandfather was pissed that I bought it and would hardly speak to me. But anyway, I dragged it out, cleaned it all up. And I think I, I sold it for a couple hundred bucks more than I paid for it. 
on uh, some guy from the Netherlands who was living down on Huron River Drive bought it and was just delighted to get it. You know, it was in nice shape and it was real low mileage. And so that kind of ended the, uh, the motorcycle uh, fiasco. Well, uh, a couple that I have in the book here that that don't pertain to cars or transportation at all, a little bit of a left turn. I can think of one here, but you probably know of a couple. Does our family have any special recipes that have been passed down? The one that I'm thinking of is Texas hash, and I don't know if that started with your mom or Teresa or where that came from. So tell me about that. I don't know exactly where that came from, but I'm guessing that um, that was a recipe that my mother found somewhere. And it it was originally called Spanish hash. (laughs) I wouldn't eat it because it's called Spanish hash. (laughs) She changed the name to Texas hash. I would eat it. So it's basically like uh, ground beef. And yeah. then like a stewed tomato and some yeah. rice. And then rice. Yep. I ha- Do you have the recipe? I do not. I can send that to you if you would like to have it. Yeah. I mean, send me a, send me a photo on the phone and I can just hold on to yeah. it. You don't need to send me the recipe card or anything. That's fine. Are there any other recipes that stand out to you? Um, there is one that uh, it's a tuna casserole and it's basically made with uh, tuna and some milk and a couple of hard boiled eggs in there. And um, then she puts some grated cheese over the top of it, but it's delicious. And I have that recipe. Your mother and I have been talking for probably two years about making that and just haven't done it. And uh, I think there's a couple of others that I have, but a tragedy is when my father died and my sister finally got out to Arizona to help my mother. When she left uh, Arizona, she had uh, taken all of the recipes that were my mother's. And so I never had a chance to go through any of those and say, hey, uh, I'd like to have this or I'd like to have that. My mom had a nice Thanksgiving dressing that was uh, made with these Brazil nuts in it and that was absolutely outstanding. And Suzanne got the recipe to that along with everything else. And uh, my mom said to her, hey, if Jimmy wants any of these recipes, you you know, make sure you share them with him. And she said, oh, yeah, no problem. But part of the problem was I didn't know the names of half of these dishes. So I didn't know what to tell Suzanne. Oh, yeah, send me this, send me that. Or I'd like to have this or that. I I didn't know. I didn't know the names of half of this stuff. And, you know, my relationship with my sister, it just never worked out, buddy. And now she's gone. So 
Uh, I have a few of my mom's recipes, and sometime we can talk about them if you'd like to have a few. Well, and I'm guessing that uh, we could ask Stephanie or Danny and probably scrounge those up if those are important to you. At yeah. least some of them. Yeah. Uh, I don't know that Suzanne made very, very many of them because Danny, uh, man, Southern, sort of had his own likes and dislikes for uh, meals and he kind of liked his meals prepared the way that he'd grown up with them so it was a different uh, a different uh, palate or a different taste that he had and I don't think Susie had much of a chance to use those recipes so here I was all bad about that I was like oh my gosh you know you couldn't have my mom, I should, you know, I should have told my mom, you know, hey, hang on to those because, uh, you know, I'd like to look through them and make some copies and then I'll send her the originals. But I wasn't given that opportunity. Here's one that I'm guessing you'll have something to say. Do we have any special family antiques or heirlooms that have significant importance? Yeah, I've got a couple things. Um, three that, uh, that I can think of the first one, uh, and, and not in any particular order, but the first one, uh, it would be from my grandfather's grandfather. Uh, he was wounded in the, uh, civil war. And while he was convalescing, they gave him this, I think it was soapstone, kind of a reddish and white, uh, a dull red, uh, like a primer red kind of color and, and white stone. And he carved this little stone Bible that he could keep in his hand. And he was wounded pretty severely. And uh, he, he was able to keep his legs, which was often not done or not common, but um, he was able to keep them. One of the bones was shattered, so he had to walk with canes the rest of his life. But there's that. And then by hook and crook, I ended up with his Civil War rifle and uh, accoutrement, uh, the uh, ammunition bag and the bayonet. And there was a belt that came with all of that. And... Uh, uh, I'm trying to think of what else. And uh, a compass. Did I say compass? Mm -mm, no. It's a beautiful little compass that came with all of that. And sorry, I got distracted. There's a giant spider crawling around here. Mm. And uh, so anyway, I got all of that stuff, which uh, I found out later the gun... He lost his gun when he was captured and he purchased this gun after the war uh, in surplus. And, uh, I, and, I, and I know that because I have the receipt from the National Archives from him buying this uh, rifle. But it's still a cool thing. And uh, another thing that I have is uh, my father was a police officer he he was in the state police for about a year and they had him stationed in 19 
40 up in Traverse City. And after a winter in Traverse City, he decided that he, he, he didn't want to be stationed up there anymore. And so he left the state police and went to work for the Ann Arbor police. And I have his sergeant's badges and his lieutenant's badge. And those, uh, those are kind of, you know, kind of near and dear to me. And then uh, my, my mom, well, my grandmother gave me that Bible because my grandfather had passed away and uh, she wanted me to have something nice to remember my grandfather by. So she was the one that gave me that stone Bible. Hmm. And uh, your, my cousin Glenda and her kids wanted that real bad, <laughs> but they had gotten so many other things that uh, this was really the only thing I, I got. So I was, I was glad to have it. And then uh, your mom, or my mom, pardon me, got to be a pretty good golfer in her 50s. And when they were down in Tucson, she would enter these um, ladies' amateur golf tournaments. And she won that, the Tucson uh, Ladies Open or whatever they called it, uh, amateur. And she won that thing two or three times. And she'd get these nice cut glass bowls. And I, I kept uh, a couple of those. So I, I have those, and those are, those are pretty cool. Nice. And I'm, I'm trying to think if there's any, uh, any other things like that. The offhand, uh, I can't really think of anything other than one thing for you. Um, when I was a young man, about 12, I started to, uh, uh, I went down and started to shoot at the uh, University of Michigan ROTC shooting range. And this was in when I had just started junior high and uh, uh, I worked for, <laughs> worked for I don't know how long. We'd go down once a week and shoot. But anyway, I finally got... I think it was the sharpshooter or the or the marks. I can't remember which one it was. Marksman's badge, I guess. Anyway, I was so proud of that thing. I still have it, and someday that's going to fall, fall on you. <laughs> <laughs> but that was the only thing I think I ever won as an accomplishment, you know. And I just was so proud of that. Well, you should be. That's that's pretty cool. Yeah, it was cool. It's a nice nice little medal. One or two more here, and then I'll I'll let you go. I'm guessing you're probably jonesing for some dinner. I know you were doing uh, French stuff before before I yeah. called you. Yeah, 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 yeah. So we'll just take it another 15 minutes. How's that sound? That's fine. So it it says here, and and these two don't really go together. But did we lose any family members in a war? Now I know. My grandfather on mom's side came to possess a German Luger, but obviously he didn't pass away in a war. And I know what I believe was my great, great, great grandfather, who was Mark Smock, right? 
right. fought in the Civil War. Right. But I, I, I don't think we lost any relatives in the Civil War. Well, that's that's not quite true. Well, that's that's why I've got you here. But let me uh, let me back up to uh, a war or two prior to the Civil War. So we're going to what the Revolutionary War? Yeah, you had two direct relatives straight back from my mother's father, Glenn Smock. And these guys were in the revolution. They were both named John, and they were a father and son. And I think the father was actually a lieutenant in one of the New Jersey militias. And he was at the Battle of Monmouth, New Jersey. And I can't help but believe he and the other troops in his militia would have seen George Washington riding around in his, uh, you know, Navy, Navy blue cape on that uh, white horse of his. And I, I always uh, think about that, you know, because Washington was uh, riding out in front of the troops to get everybody charged up. And so he would have ridden by damn near everybody. And uh, I just always thought that was cool as hell. Neither one of those two died in the revolution. There are other relatives, but I don't um, exactly, I haven't fit together the the relationship, how they, they were like cousins or something like that. And I haven't been able to figure out exactly how those relationships worked but as far as i know they all survived the war as well then we uh, we get to the civil war and mark was wounded and when he joined uh, several of his brother-in-laws joined at the same time in the michigan 22nd and when they got down to Georgia and they were in that battle at Chickamauga, Mark was wounded and captured. And his um, brother-in-law, uh, his wife's brother, a guy named George Bush, was captured, but in the confusion right before dark, managed to escape and skedaddle to beat hell and got out of there and he survived but there was a another his sister's husband and his, and his last name was Lockwood he died of uh, pneumonia or typhoid something like that on the way down and then there was another brother-in-law and his name was David Hiscott, I think, and he was killed at Chickamauga. So they're not directly related to you, but they were Mark's brother-in-laws. And, uh, and then his wife's younger brother, a guy named Levi Bush, he was in the 10th Calvary, Michigan Calvary, and he died of, I guess, exposure and pneumonia near uh, Knoxville, Tennessee. 
And then Mark had one other brother named George, and he was uh, he was an artillery man late in the war, like 1864. And he also he joined, served a year or so, maybe two. Uh, after the war, he may have been, you know, part of the um, the group that stayed south. And uh, he anyway, uh, he survived the war. And then uh, World War One, uh, Glenn was exempted from the war. My grandfather, because he and my grandmother uh, had had Bob, my uncle. And he was uh, just a little boy. And so if you, you know, you uh, had a child, they tried to exempt you. So he didn't have to serve. And then in World War II, uh, my father didn't serve because he had, uh, his appendix had burst when he was 16. And he had an incision from uh, his belly button to his side all the way to his side where they tried to open him up and clean everything out. And then a second incision that was about six inches long. And uh, the army was concerned that he, he could have a, you know, a hernia if he came under uh, stress or strain, lifting something or whatever. And so they, uh, they wouldn't take him. He, he tried two or three times uh, at first they drafted him and then they, they uh, said, no, you're not, you know, you know, we're not going to take you. And then he went down again on his own, I think two more times and they kept, they kept refusing to take him and he finally gave up. And at one point I remember somebody at the draft board apparently said to him, Hey, you know, you're a police officer. We need police officers at home. So, you know, let's let it go. And why don't you just stay home? Hmm. So, uh, and then Vietnam, uh, Richard was frightened to death that he might get drafted and, uh, and didn't. Um, I think his, I think he had high blood pressure and they wouldn't take him, which is probably the reason he's not here today. He never went in and got treated for that. And then um, I was eligible, but the war was starting to wind down when I graduated in 1970 from high school. And they had a draft, and I can't remember if it was 71 or 72. And out of 366 numbers, I drew number 256, I think it was. And so um, they were only drafting up to about number 13. So I was, uh, I did not, I did not have to go. And, and that's it. Good deal. Now, yeah. this, this last one that I've got here, uh, nothing really pops to mind for me. Maybe it does for you, or maybe we should both put our thinking caps on and see what we can come up with for next time. And and I'll let you go after this one so you can get something tasty to munch on. What are some of the most interesting facts about our family? I'm not touching that one. <laughs> <laughs> uh. 
interesting facts. Anything come to mind? Yeah, a couple things. My my uh, my mom's father wanted to go to U of M, and I believe he had been accepted. And his father passed away from tuberculosis. And, you know, this would have been probably uh, nine, sometime between 1900 and 1905. And my grandfather, um, he had his mom and he had a younger brother and a sister and they they didn't have anything joe mm-hmm. they were living in a little house on wall street in ann arbor off the broadway bridge and almost directly across the river from the gandy dancer or the train station mm-hmm. and uh they were they were pretty poor because it took you know it took a while before his father passed away I think he was 54 when he died from TB. And so Glenn, my grandfather, uh, got a job and started working so he could uh, help his mother and his younger brother and sister survive. So my hat's off to him. And then your uncle, Richard, uh, got accepted to Michigan. But he he was a party boy, Joe. <laughs> and uh, he got himself on probation uh, right away the first semester. And then he had to uh, beg and plead after his second semester. Academic probation you're talking? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he wasn't, he just, he was partying and. Not going well, to class. <laughs> going to games and yeah, you know, I'd be I'd be downstairs calling him. My mom would make me go down and call him. And I was uh, about eleven and uh I got tired of calling him, so he was he was living in the basement. And I know it sounds kind of funny, but he had a pretty nice setup. He was back by the furnace room. Mm-hmm. So I'd pound on the furnace. <laughs> Get him up. <laughs> and uh, oh boy, there were a couple days where I could feel him breathing down my neck and grabbing at my heels on the way up the stairs. <laughs> <laughs> and I finally had to tell my mother, I said, Hey, you know, I'm 11, he's 18, he's an adult. I'm not calling him anymore. Of course, my mom got PO'd, but I didn't care. I wasn't going to go through that. I'd end up going up and down those damn stairs three or four times to call him, and he still wouldn't get up. <laughs> so I, I told her, I, I'm not doing it. And so she says, well, I'm telling your father. And I said, go ahead. So she was bitching to my dad about it, and he sat there, and he looked at her, and he said, the boy's right. He said, I'm going to have a talk with him tonight. And he told him, Richard, we're not calling you anymore. You get up and go to class, you go. If you don't, you don't. So anyway, uh, he ended up uh, bombing out of there, and which was sad because he was—he uh, really was a better student than I was, but he was just having too much fun and screwing around. No discipline. Well, you know, and and that's a lot of what school really is—is is mm-hmm. studying. And yeah, I mean, there's. 
you know, there's there's people who are just naturally gifted and can just get through the classes. But generally, by that time, when you hit college, at some point, coasting will catch up to you. And, you know, yes. you can you can be, you know, naturally just smart and not have to read books. But at some point, generally, you're going to have to write a paper or have to, you know, read 50 pages to be able to take a test. And it'll catch up to you. I know. People would tell me all the time that I was smart, and I'd tell them, like, no, I just study. And I never, you know, whether it was at uh, Richard or at uh, ASU, I never felt like this stuff came easy to me. I had to put in a lot of hard work, and and if that's smart, that's that's fine. But I I never felt like it just came easy to me. I felt like it, it took discipline. Well, I coasted through high school like probably no one ever did, including my brother. And uh, then when I got done and was trying to decide what to do with myself, uh, I decided to go to Washtenaw Community College because my college options were, with a C average, your college options out of high school are pretty limited. Mm Mm-hmm. So uh, I started thinking about it when I got in there and I started applying myself and worked hard and started getting all A's and B's and uh, decided I wanted to go to the U of M. And you did. And so uh, at the uh, halfway through my second year, I applied, got accepted and went to U of M but the uh, the rigors of studying in class are a little tougher. Although I, I worked hard at Washington to bring my grade point up, it's even a little tougher at U of M. Yeah. And uh, boy, I'll tell you, that first semester, uh, I found myself in trouble, just like my brother. But I wasn't going around so much as I I wasn't studying. And thank God he'd been through that experience because he uh, he told me, he said, hey, don't worry about it. And he said, work on getting your grade point up. So he said, take some stuff that sounds fun and won't be, you know, too tough. He said, don't, you know, don't take calculus or trig. <laughs> Is that where future worlds came in? Oh, <laughs> yeah, I think that was my second year there, but... Yeah, uh, that was one of those not-so-tough courses, huh? Oh, that, Joseph, that was the that was the most enlightening, great class I ever had at U of M. It was wonderful. And then and, Mom did pretty well in high school. Wasn't she second in her class? Didn't she end up being salutatorian? Yeah, she could have been valedictorian, but... You know, she's uh, she's a little meek, and I don't think she wanted to get up and have to do the speech. And so she was happy with second in her class. Which but, is still quite the, the accomplishment. The point I was trying to make with the U of M is I was finally the first one to get through. Mm-hmm. And uh, the sad part about it is my folks wanted to come down and go through commencement but they never congratulated me for graduating, ever. And um, Jan and I had both elected not to uh, not to walk, so to speak, to uh, go through commencement. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just had to mail me my diploma, much to my parents' disappointment. But 
I was always a little disappointed that uh, neither one of them ever congratulated me for graduating. And they made such a big deal out of it when my brother got in and then he flunked out and then I got in and stuck it out and worked, worked hard. You know, it wasn't, wasn't easy for me. And, uh, I got through it and, and, uh, got my diploma. And I was just, I was disappointed that, you know, my folks didn't say, Hey, we're, you know, we're proud of you. Congratulations. Nothing. I got nothing. Do you think maybe some of that was because they knew Richard didn't get through and, and Susie didn't go that, that they, didn't want to make such a big deal out of congratulating you because they think it would have dinged them or just something else? Uh, no, I don't think it had anything to do with dinging anybody else. Um, I don't know. Sometime offline we can talk about it, but uh, sure. I'd rather not, rather not do that here. Yeah. You want to uh, hit stop here and... Go and get something for dinner, and I will pack up and uh, do the same. Yeah, that sounds good. I'm uh, I'm going to finish some work here and uh, then go home and get some dinner and go for a six-mile run, see if I can break my 10K time tonight. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. <laughs> well, one of these days I'm going to have my future world's poster mm. from 1973, I think it was framed please do i would love so to see that that'll be another heirloom that uh <laughs> and it, it's pretty cool because uh we had lectures from uh, buckminster fuller and ray bradbury and oh gosh i can't even think of all of the guys we had that came into the u of m and uh, were guest speakers huh. and uh it was uh very enlightening very you know very cool sounds good so, What's for dinner? I have no idea. I have to rough your mom up here to see what uh, see what we're gonna do. Maybe uh, maybe uh, peanut butter and jelly and a bowl of soup. <laughs> it's getting kind of late. That's not so bad. Yeah, it sounds good, doesn't it? All right, Tiger. Yeah, thanks for your time, Joey. I really enjoyed it, buddy. Well, no, that, that's what I say to you. I, <laughs> I always have a good time talking to you, and I appreciate you sharing. Yeah. Thanks, son. I love you. Love you, too. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. <laughs>